for those of you who are already turned into Matthew 5, good job. You are working ahead for next week. Uh, that is where Steve will pick back up in. Uh, however, for this morning, we will be in Romans 8. So I'll give you guys just a second to get to Romans 8. While you're turning there, hopefully Romans 8 rings a little bit of a bell to you. And you can remember that uh, Romans 8 is a passage that Steve referenced a couple of times uh, last week, uh, referring to the uh, law of the Spirit. And so I thought uh, this would be a great opportunity for us to dive a little bit more into that and really complement or go parallel with what Steve was already teaching us. Now, before I get started, it's interesting. I wasn't going to start this way in all of my practices. And then this morning before, uh, while I was praying, uh, in, in just final preparations, uh, just something was really laid on my heart. I thought, I need to just start this way. You guys need to remember that when we are taught something, we will be followed up and we will be tested. And oftentimes they say the teacher or the, the pastor is the person who um, is taught more than those who are listening to the message on a Sunday morning. So just a little bit of insight into my week. I can tell you that this has been a very trying week for me. Uh, what I have been studying in preparation for this morning uh, and learning has been um, amazingly tested in me. Uh, and I was not perfect in that test uh, whatsoever. But what it did remind me of is, if that truly is the case, which I believe it is, that the, the, the teacher is taught more than the listeners, and that every time that you're te- uh, taught something, you're tested, I think we have to understand um, how much on a weekly basis that Steve, who teaches us twice a week, is ultimately tested in everything that he teaches us. And that is why this annual retreat that him and Angela go on down to Florida uh, to just be uh, rejuvenated, to be refreshed, is so vitally important. And that became so very clear to me this week as I was struggling with the testing of what was, what was being taught to me. And it reminded me that this once a week, um, or this one week um, retreat, uh, getaway for Stephen and Angela is very, very important, but that does not take away from the fact that we have to remember every, every day I'd uh, be praying for them as, as our leaders and our teachers of this fellowship. And so I tell you that just to know that hopefully today um, you too will be taught something. And if you're taught something, just be ready because that teaching is going to be followed by a testing later this week. So let's just remember, like I said, pray for Steve and Angela as they uh, are, are in Florida. Uh, they'll be coming back uh, later this week uh, and will be joining us again next Sunday. Uh, but pray for them for their, their time away and also just continue to pray for them uh, for what uh, they experience on a weekly basis that maybe we don't fully understand. So I think all of us have had time, hopefully, to turn to uh, Romans uh, chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 1, word 1. And for those of you who can see what the first word is, you will know why we have to start with only word number one. The word is, therefore. And obviously, we know that we need to stop and we need to understand what the word is, therefore. So let's understand what Paul has been talking about earlier in Romans. I think the easiest way to do that is just go to the last few words of chapter 7. And Paul states, In the sinful nature, I am a slave to the law of sin. 
Paul has just got done talking in the first section here of Romans how those who are under the law ultimately only ever find themselves as a slave to the law. He says back in verse 15 of chapter 7, I do not understand what I do. For, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. So Paul has this struggle right now for those who are living under the law. It's this battle, and they can't figure out what the answer is. And oftentimes, I think in today's society, those who are living under the law, they are trying to figure out what they can do. If they do one, two, three, four, five, go through a checklist. That's what they can do to become more right with God, to become uh, even a better Christian, because so many Christians are under this uh, law mindset. And oftentimes what, that, what happens is um, you analyze, you overanalyze, you obsess, you focus too much on what you can do. How can I be a better person? What can I do to, to be better with, um, with, with myself, with my sin? And, and you focus everything on you. It's how can I do it? But what you have to understand is you can't do it. You can't do it because we are all fleshly human beings. We are all weak. What happens here is when you focus so much on what you are trying to do or how you can do it, all that leads to is condemnation, a heavy weight. And I had to look up the word condemnation because it's not a word that I typically use in my uh, daily lingo. Uh, but as you look at condemnation, specifically uh, as it's referred to throughout the Bible, it's in a very judicial sense. And it has to do with a verdict being rendered, um, a penalty that's being handed out. And the thing is, when somebody is condemned, the verdict is always guilt. Those who live under law or religiosity always seem to have this guilt that's weighed upon them because they always seem to be found guilty because they can't, in their own power, escape the rules of the law. We know that we are all sinful human beings because we are all of the Adamic nature. We are all sinful in flesh because of Adam. But we got to learn to stop asking the question of how we can do this or what we can do to be a better person. And we got to change the question that we ask. So Paul states, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have to change our mindset. Paul states at the very end of chapter 7 in verse 24, he calls himself, what a, wretched man and I, what a wretched man am I? You feel that condemnation. You feel that weight. But his next phrase isn't, what can I do to be less wretched? How can I be less wretched? His next phrase is, who will rescue me from this body of death? That is the question that we need to ask ourselves today. It's not what can we do, but who can do it in us? Now, luckily for us, we all know the answer. Paul does go ahead and tell us the answer, though. It says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then in verse 1 of chapter 8, he says, those who are in Christ Jesus. 
we need to start understanding it's not about what or how, but it's about who. It's about whose we are. And then he says, in Christ Jesus. So if I was to stand up here and I was to have a dirty, filthy rag full of mud, grime, grease, whatever you want to call it, and I take that rag and I was to place it in a, uh, a perfect white bag and shut that bag, what would you guys see? You wouldn't see a dirty, filthy rag. You would see that perfect white bag. In the same way, when we are in Christ Jesus, our dirty, filthy nature is placed in God's sinless perfection. And that is how we are seen. That is how God sees us. God sees us through Jesus, a sinless perfection. With that, we have to understand that there is no condemnation when we understand whose we are, when we understand who can save us from that law that is sin, that is death. Who can do that? Christ Jesus can do that. We are not condemned. Now, what the verse doesn't say and what I didn't say is it didn't say that we won't fail. It didn't even say that we won't still sin. It didn't say that we won't still have mistakes. What it says is that we are not condemned because of that. When we look ourselves in the mirror, we need to understand and we need to learn to see ourselves like God does. Don't see ourselves as that person who made a mistake or who sinned or who had a failure. Look in the mirror and see yourself the way that God sees you sees you in Christ Jesus. And if you can learn to see yourself in that way, what does Paul say? There will be no more condemnation. There should be no more guilt placed upon you. Because you are freed from that. You're able to see yourself in the same way that God sees you. Verse 2, Because through Christ Jesus... The law of the spirit of life set me free. If anyone wants to go, oh, they they can there. Because obviously it's an amazing song, a purposeful song this morning, that we were set free from that law. When we're set free from that law, though, we have to grab, grab onto whatever we were set to. So we were set free from the law, from that of sin, or we were set free from the law of sin to the law of the spirit of life. So let's take a look at that. We were set free from the law of sin, which leads to death. The law of sin, which is death. And we were set free to the law of the spirit, which is life. If you want to, you can look with me to Jeremiah 31. Flip over to your left a little bit. Unfortunately, I am not using a skinny black Bible. I am using a rather thick black Bible. So I can tell you the page I'm on. We'll do none of you any good if you are using the the skinny black Bible in front of you. Uh, So let's just turn over to Jeremiah chapter 31. 
briefly picking up in verse 31 and then going to verse 33, Jeremiah says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Down to verse 33. This, new, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. So what Jeremiah here is saying is that Jesus stated there will be a new covenant, a new law. We will no longer be under the law that's written on the tablets, but we'll be under the law that's given in our hearts, that's written on our hearts. A law that we follow out of love, not out of obligation. That's the new covenant that we all live under. Once again, see yourselves living in that new law. It's a promise of God's spoken by Jesus. You know it's true. So why are we so afraid to hold on to it? Why are we so afraid to grasp it? Look at yourselves and say, I want to hold on to that new promise, that new law of the Spirit. I want that life. And hold on to that. So why do you want this new law of the Spirit? Well, in verse 3 it says, For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in sinful man. So why do we not want to hold on to the law? Because the law is powerless. That was one of the four Ps from last week. The law was powerless. What the law can do is the law can point out our sin. The law even produces the sin. You know, it says that I didn't know what sin was. Um, I didn't know what coveting was until the law told me not to covet. You know, the, the law uh, produces the sin, but it is powerless. Now, I don't know about you guys, but last week we had this um, analogy of the stop sign. When you pull up to the stop sign, you see the word stop. That sign in and of itself has no power to make you stop. So what was the picture? The stop sign, if it had power, what would it do? Wham! And come right down on the roof of your car. So this week, as I was thinking about the law being powerless, every time I pulled up to a stop sign and I saw this word stop, what did I do? No, I didn't stop. I went faster through the stop sign. That way, if the sign came down, it would miss my car. Okay? I found a way around it. But that's how we all, that's how we all work. Even when we know the law is powerless, and even if we know that the law had some power over us, we would still try to find a way around it. We would still try to find a way to get around what the law was teaching us to do. Because the law has no power. Why is it powerless? What Paul states here is because it's weakened by the sinful nature. It has no power because in order for the law to be fulfilled, that would be our doing, our works. And what are you and I? We are sinful nature. We are sinful human. So there is no power because the law loses its power because of the weakness of who we are, who we are in the sinless flesh. What we have to understand is that the law is not fulfilled by us, but the law is fulfilled in us through Jesus Christ. 
Last week we understood that it said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. That is why the law has been fulfilled through Jesus Christ living in us in the form of the Holy Spirit. That gives us a choice to not live by the law, not live by our fleshly nature. The law still has a purpose. It still has a guide for us, but we follow it out of love, not obligation. So what can't the law do? Well, we know that the law has no power, so that means it's what's it powerless to do? Well, it cannot justify us. The law cannot make us just as if I've never sinned, the definition of justified. For a little bit of backing for this, let's turn to Acts chapter 13. Just so you guys know, I think Jeremiah is the farthest we're going to have to turn away from Romans, so hopefully it should be pretty easy for us today as we uh, move around the scriptures. Uh, going to be in Acts and then uh, Galatians and Philippians. So we'll kind of keep it all right there in that uh, same section. Acts chapter 13, picking up in verse 38. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. It is because of Jesus that we are justified, not because of the law, the law of Moses. The law is powerless to justify us. Let's turn over to Galatians chapter 3. And I have a note here to remind you guys, you might want to put a little marker in Galatians. We will be in Galatians uh, for a few verses and then jumping over to Philippians. So uh, if you want to mark your place there in Galatians, it will help us for, for later. And we're in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Galatians three twenty-four. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law led us, but we are justified by the faith, and that's the faith in Jesus Christ. The law did not justify us. Our faith in Jesus Christ is what makes us just as if we never sinned. Uh, Let's look back just a few verses Uh, Staying there in Galatians 3. Go to verse 10 and the first part of 11. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law. We are not justified in front of God because we can stand before him and say, God, I fulfilled everything that the law said. I did all of this, God. That's not why we're justified. We're justified because of God's son. We're justified because of the act on the cross. That is why we are justified, not because of the law. 
The other thing that the law can't do, so the law can't justify us, the law can't make us righteous. It can't make us right with God. Let's get the definition of righteous or righteousness. So finishing verse 11 there in Galatians 3, it states the righteousness will live or the righteous will live by faith. So once again, we are justified because of faith in Jesus. We are righteous because of our faith in how we live in Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with the law. Once again, the law cannot be fulfilled by us. It has to be fulfilled in us. It's fulfilled in us through our faith in Jesus Christ. Since we're already still there in Galatians 3, I told you all to mark your uh, place there, so hopefully you're still there. Let's read one more passage. Galatians 3, 21. Second part there. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Righteousness did not come by the law. How did righteousness come? What did God do because there was no power in the law? God fulfilled the law by sending his only son. And then as Paul states back here in Romans 8, he says that he sent his son, his own son, in the likeness of sinful man, like you and I, yet he was without sin, to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in sinful man. So God condemned sin. God said the verdict has been given guilty and the punishment was paid on the cross through the sinless flesh of Jesus. It is now dead to us. It died on that cross. But yet oftentimes we don't like to let it die. We like to keep bringing it back up. It's dead on the cross. That is what the power of God did that the power of law could not do. I'm uh, reminded, uh, one of the uh, TV shows I like to watch is called Shark Tank. So for those of you who may not watch Shark Tank, just a a quick uh, synopsis, uh, entrepreneurs uh, go on the show and they present their ideas to a group of investors. And uh, those uh, investors um, are called sharks. That's why they call it Shark Tank. Well, one of those investors is called Mr. Wonderful. His real name's Kevin O'Leary. Well, if an idea is presented to him that he doesn't like, he says to the entrepreneur, you're dead to me. Now, that entrepreneur doesn't drop down dead. No. But what Kevin O'Leary is saying is that concept, that idea, no longer has value to him. He's no longer going to give an ear to what that entrepreneur is saying. That idea no longer has worth to him. He's saying, you're dead to me. In the same way, we need to say to our sinful nature, our sinful flesh, 
you're dead to me and do this. It's dead to us because of the power of God and because our sinful nature was put on the cross. I almost wrote on my mirror this morning as I was getting ready uh, in final preparations. I almost wrote and took a, took a dry erase marker and wrote across my mirror, you're dead to me. And, and honestly, if we all need to do that um, when we get home tonight uh, to help remind us that we are dead to that sinful flesh, when you look in the mirror, say, you're dead to me. Let's do that. If you don't have a dry erase marker, I've heard lipstick works well. But it has to be the red lipstick. I guess other colors don't. But anyways, when you guys get home tonight, this afternoon, not tonight. We'll be done before tonight. When you guys get home this afternoon, write on your mirrors, you're dead to me. That way, every morning, you're reminded of the power of the cross and what was sacrificed up there. It was your sinful flesh nature. You're dead to me. You have to go from that death to life in the spirit. Picking back up in chapter 8, verse 4. So why, why, was, why was the law put to death? So that in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do, know, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. So it says here, the righteous requirements. What are these righteous requirements? Well, those righteous requirements are how we should live our lives. Those righteous requirements are what we're studying in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. This is how we should live. Um, you know, it talks about adultery. It talks about murder. Uh, the end of chapter 5 talks about love. That's how we should live as a Christian. Remember, Matthew chapter 5 was given to the disciples, those listening. This is how we should act. And then at the very end of chapter 5, in verse 43, after talking about love, it says, be perfect as your Father is perfect. Those are the righteous requirements that we have in order to live our lives. The only way we can do that is by telling our sinful nature, you're dead to me, and letting the Holy Spirit live out in us. Because of the cross, we now have the opportunity to accept Jesus into our lives and have the Spirit living in us so that through the power of the Spirit, we can live that righteous life. In order to do this, though, in order to live this life, you have to yield your, yourself. You have to say, you're dead to me. You have to yield your flesh. You have to hand over or offer your flesh to God. You have to decide that you want a spirit-led life. We're going to pick back up in Galatians, if you've uh, still got your uh, spot there in Galatians. Uh, my pen rolled out, so I do not, so give me just a second. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 5, picking up in verse 16. Now, if you guys don't, oh, sorry, above verse 16, it says in your bold print, probably something like, life by the Spirit. So if you don't have a little Romans 8 written next to it, you probably should. You probably should always make sure that you're marking these parallel passages. You can't study Romans 8 8, where it says life through the Spirit without looking at Galatians 5 that says life by the Spirit. But let's read 
starting in verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. What you have to see here is there's always going to be this spiritual battle in us. The the sinful fleshly nature is going to do what the sinfully fleshly nature wants. That is opposite or in contrary to what the Spirit wants. There's always going to be a battle going on. We always have to decide who's going to win that battle. Who are you going to feed more? I believe it's like there's two dogs in our lives, and you've got to feed one more than the other. Whichever one you feed is the one that's going to be dominant or evident in your life. So which one are you going to feed? You're always going to have this this constant battle. And what happens with this battle is somebody's going to win. Now, how do you know who wins? Well, it states here, starting in verse 19, the acts of sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom. Now, some of these are a little extreme, but in some form or fashion, we're able to see how all of these appear in our lives if we let the sinful fleshly nature lead us. Have we had anger in the last week? Have we thought wrongly about a fellow human? Those are all things that show that the sinful nature is still alive in us. And what we have to do is put that to death. And when we do that, what will happen? Well, verse 22 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's manifest in joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature. It is dead to us with its passions and its desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us only walk where the Spirit leads us. Let us only go where we are directed. So, if we want to have this life in the Spirit, we have to yield our lives to the Spirit. We have to have a Spirit-led life. So what does that look like? Well, Paul, back in Romans 8 starts in verse 5 talking about two mindsets. Mindset 1, a fleshly-led life. Those who live according to the sinful, fleshly nature have their mind set on what that nature desires. So when we talk about a mindset, we talk about your, your orientation, what you think about. Sometimes it can be what, what your disposition is or what consumes you. But ultimately, it's here, who leads your life? 
if you have a fleshly, sin-nature-led life, well, let's look at it this way. We are, we are, there's three parts of us, if you, if you think about it this way. You've got your mind or your soul, you've got our fleshly body, and you've got our spirit. If you put, or the, and the question is, who's going to lead your mind? Okay? So if you are going to be led by the flesh and your sin nature, that means your flesh and your sin nature take number one spot. They are therefore going to lead your mind and your soul. And then a distant third, if you can even put it in third, is going to be your spirits. How do you know those who are led by the sin nature, led by the flesh? It's because of what their mind is set on, what they speak about, what they talk about. If you talk to somebody who's fleshly led, they might talk about the party they went to last night. They might talk about the car they're fixing up. They don't be talking a lot about worldly, fleshly things. Now, it's okay to talk about some of those things because we all have hobbies, we all have passions, but our general orientation and our disposition, if we are of the Spirit, is not going to be of those things. So Paul says in the second half of chapter 5, he says, but, so you can live with this, you can live this way, body, flesh leading, mind and soul, followed by spirit, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. So those who are led by the spirit, they take it and they invert it. The spirit takes the number one position in their lives. That's what leads, guides, and directs them. That's what leads, guides, and directs their mind and their soul. And then honestly, that fleshly body once again, it becomes a distant third. Let's call it a, it becomes a hundred and third. I don't know, it's, it's distant. If every morning we're willing to say, you're dead to me. Spirit is leading my mind and my soul. That body is dead to me. So we have that choice. We have two mindset right here that Paul's telling us that we need to choose between. We need to ask ourselves, who is going to lead our lives? So if you really want to understand more about your mindset and what a spirit-led mind truly looks like or feels like, uh, I would suggest spending some time in Philippians this week. Uh, Philippians has an amazing uh, outline uh, of the mind. Chapter 1 talks about being single-minded, being only focused on God and the spirit, no matter what your circumstances are. Chapter 2 talks about a submissive mind, putting God first, others second, and yourself is a third. Chapter 3 talks about the spiritual, spiritual mind. It's living with heaven in mind. And then chapter 4 talks about that secure mind, that a result of the first three mindsets should give you this secure mind of peace and security in what you have. So I suggest that you maybe go through Philippians. But right now, I'm going to turn to Philippians chapter 2. And as we talk about a spirit-controlled mind, let's just read the first few verses of chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, 
being of one spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of your others. And then verse 5, your attitude or your mind should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So is your mind the same as that of Christ Jesus, or is your mind that of your sinful, fleshly nature? That's the question you have to ask yourself. Back in Romans 8, Paul continues to talk a little bit more about the differentiators of the two mindsets. He says, the mind of sinful man is death. Obviously, if the wages of sin is death and the law of sin is death, then the mind of the sinful is going to be death. But the mind controlled by the spirit is life. And what's the next phrase there? And peace. I thought it was interesting here, Paul put in the word peace here. Because everywhere else he said it's life by the spirit. It talks about living in the spirit. We're not dead if we're living under the law. And he reminds us here that there's this peace that comes when you live with your spirit-led mind. As I just stated, Philippians 4 is a great chapter to talk about that peace that comes with a spirit-led mind. So I'm going to read real quickly out of Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. You want to talk about having peace? Well, rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Have peace. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, admirable, anything that's excellent, praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or have heard from me or seen, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This spirit-led, God-led mind will give us this unfathomable peace in our lives because we're letting God lead. We're not letting the sinful nature lead us and do what we don't want to do and not do what we want to do. We find that peace because the Spirit is in control of our lives. Finally, when you look at the two mindsets, Paul says, verse 7, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law nor can it do so. The sin and the flesh rebel against God. It is in constant um, hostility. It's that spiritual battle I mentioned earlier. Because those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. We were created to please and worship God. We were created to be in the Spirit and to live a life pleasing to God for his pleasure. So if we're letting our sinful nature win out, we cannot please God because that's not what we were created to do. You 
referring to those who are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So you are not controlled by the sinful nature if the Spirit of God is living in you. Now what does this look like when I say living in us? It's an indwelling. The Spirit comes into us. I think oftentimes we're willing to give God, give the Spirit control of our bodies 95% of the way. Okay, maybe if we're really good, we give 95%. Maybe truly most of us only give like 80%. And we say, God, you have control of all of this, but not this little part right here. I'm going to hold on to that part of me. That's not what God's looking for. He's looking for a full indwelling. What does he want? I think the, the, the uh, analogy has been given, if you go to your parents' house, you feel very comfortable. You might kick your shoes off, go sit on the couch. Go, you might go help yourself to something in the fridge. That is the indwelling that the spirit needs to have. It needs to be a comfortable place for the spirit to live. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, you don't have to turn with me if you don't want to. Uh, be a quick, quick read here. This, uh, this verse should ring, uh, uh, you know, should be uh, one we've all heard uh, quite frequently. But it says that do you not know that your body is a temple to the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you received from God? When you said, God, I believe in Jesus, I believe in you, the Spirit is able to indwell in us. Your body is now his temple. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. How do you honor God with your body? How do you know if the spirit of God is indwelling in you? Well, go back and look at the fruit that's being produced in your life. What fruit is there? And that should tell you who's indwelling you. That should tell you who's leading your life. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of righteousness. Sorry, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Our bodies are dead, but we can be alive because the spirit is living in us. That's what we need to remember. You're dead to me. I want life. I want life in the spirit. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Lindsay led us earlier, the same power that rose rose Jesus from the grave is the same power that can be in us if we so choose to allow that. That's the same power that can allow us victory over sin. That is the same power that has power. It's not the powerless law. It's a power of the Holy Spirit. What you have to remember, though, is it's not about me. It's not about what I've done. It's about what he's done for me. Is what he's done for you. So what you have to understand is it's not, a, it's not enough to say, I want the spirit. 
It's not enough to take the Spirit. You have to allow the Spirit control over you. You have to let the Spirit take you. And you have to live that Spirit-led life. Therefore, brothers, verse 12, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds, you're dead to me, misdeeds, of the body, you will live. We have a choice. Are we going to let the Spirit have us? Are we going to offer our bodies to the Spirit? Flip over to Romans 6. So just a couple pages to your left. This whole chapter is titled, Dead to Sin, but Alive in Christ. I'm going to specifically read, starting in verse 11. Romans 6, 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Offer yourself to God. Offer yourself to the Spirit. Don't just say, I want the Spirit, but offer yourself and be dead to sin. We have to understand what the Spirit has done for us. The Spirit, the first time the Spirit worked in us, it was convicting us of our sins. Then the Spirit directed us towards or pointed us towards Christ. So hopefully we knew that we were a sinner. We knew that we needed a Savior. And then we had a choice to accept accept God, accept the Spirit into our lives. But once again, that's not where it ends. It doesn't end with that acceptance. It ends with we give ourselves over to the power of the Spirit. We therefore allow the Spirit to finish its work, it empowers us and it enables us to live a life that God has called us to. It empowers us. It enables us to say, sinful nature, you're dead to me. But we have to make that choice. And finally, verse 14, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, if you just stop and you think about the concept of being a son of God, um, that is a message all in of itself. We are not going to get into that today. The idea of sonship, being an heir to God, being a co-heir with Christ. But boy, that should bring you a lot of joy, knowing that that's what we have if we live a life in the Spirit. What I want to close us with today is the first part of verse 14. Those who are led by the Spirit. We have a choice to make. We have to decide who is going to lead our lives. Do we want it to be body, fleshly, sinful nature, followed by our mind and our soul, 
followed by the Spirit? Or do we want to choose to let the, the Spirit lead our lives, take the number one position? Followed then, let it lead our mind, our soul. And then a distant third is our fleshly sinful body. When we look at that, what do we say? You're dead to me. We have that choice today. And it goes back to the choice that Paul was talking about as he started chapter 8. We can spend all of our lives trying to figure out the how or the who, or sorry, the how or the what. But we're never going to get there until we decide the who. Who is going to lead your life? That will decide whether you face that condemnation or you're free from that condemnation. We all have that choice this morning. If you choose to live that spirit-led life, be ready for that spiritual conflict. Be ready for that fleshly nature. It's not going to want to give up easily. We have to be ready for a testing this week of that fleshly nature coming out of us. But how do we know that we can win by saying, Spirit, take all of me? Because the Spirit is where the power is. We are dead to sin if we choose that Spirit-led life. So I ask, your, ask yourselves today, who's leading your life? Now, we might be quick to answer because we know what we want the answer to be, and our hearts even going to tell us, well, this is what the right answer is. What I encourage you to do is look and say, Is my life producing those things that are listed as things of the sinful nature? Or is my life producing the fruits of the Spirit? That's where you'll you'll get your answer of who is leading your life. And if it's not the person you want leading your life, make that choice to say, who's going to lead my life? The Spirit is going to lead my life. I'm going to live an abundant, full, Spirit-led life. We have that choice to make. Hopefully this week, we all make that choice to wake up in the morning. You're dead to me, sinful flesh. You're alive in me. You have me, spirit. I will be led by you. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, I just thank you so much for this morning, for this opportunity to uh, just freely come and worship you, study your word. I do thank you for paying the penalty of sin on that cross so that we are not found guilty of the law of sin. And we have the freedom of a spirit-led, a spirit-filled life, Lord. I just pray that all of us can make that decision this morning to live that life and then let that power work out in our lives. Lord, just thank you for the freedom of loving us so much that you said, this is the life that I want for you, son. This is the life that I have for you. Take it, receive it, and then give yourself over to that life. Let's all do that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.